Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone a, the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship, ready to focus on the Word, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for another day, another opportunity to serve you, to glorify you in our lives, another opportunity to grow spiritually, to focus on your plan and purpose for our lives, that we might reflect uh, your glory through our lives, our obedience, and our study and application of your word. Now, Father, as we continue our study in a passage and in in, a a topic, a theological topic that is very difficult for a lot of people to understand and work through. We pray that you would help us to have some clarity and understanding that we might uh, be able to understand you more clearly and understand your word more clearly and be able to explain it to those who are confused. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, but we are also looking at the doctrine of election and how that word is used. And that's going to take us to the point where we ended last week in Matthew chapter 22, looking at a very important parable that gives us a a great insight into the usage of this term. But I want to review it. Uh, Things like this we have to hear a lot of times, just so you know, Things like this, I have to study over and over again. Every time I hit a topic like this, I go back, I reread articles I've read in the past, I reread things that I have taught in the past, I modify things, change things, and every now and then I read the same thing for the 15th time, and then it suddenly hits me, wow, that's really a great point. Why haven't I seen that the last 15 times I've read this article? So we're all that way. It takes repetition. We have to hear it over and over again before uh, it all begins to click for us. So uh, this evening we're going to move, I hope we'll get there, move from study of election as, as not as choice, but that the word elect, those who are elect, really means the choice ones, and that that is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father stated in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Is the salutation in 1 Peter states that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the resident aliens of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect. Now that word elect in the English is put down here in verse 2 in order to give it proximity to the prepositional clauses that it's, that modify it. Elect is the noun according to in sanctification, which should be translated by sanctification, and for obedience are three prepositional clauses that we will see in just a minute modify the uh, adjective elect, uh, the, and then, but in the Greek, that word elect is up here before you get to the, to the resident alien. So Greek can do that. It, it, it will move the words around because it's an inflected language. So, uh, the order doesn't relate to the, in the same way that the order does in English. So I pointed this out last time, that we have these three prepositional phrases that modify 
and and explain aspects of the word elect. And so this is a very important uh, concept for us to understand. And people are often confused about this, as I pointed out in the past, looking at things historically. We've often had these disagreements between two extremes that really developed outside of the Bible. Uh, These were not issues that developed within Old Testament Judaism, and they're issues related to determinism and and freedom, determinism and free will, as it's often stated. You find great debates going back among the Greeks. You have debates uh, that continued through different groups, even within the medieval Roman Catholic Church, and then those were reflected again even in the Protestant Reformation. Once you get certain theological constructs really embedded in in people's minds, and this affects us in a lot of different ways, it's hard to think outside of a box that we put our own thinking in. And a lot of theologians get into certain boxes, and we sort of get predisposed to seeing things and understanding things a certain way. So we sort of I backed us up to look at some of the basics here. I'm just going to remind you of the things we looked at last time, that there's three basic words in this <clears throat> in this word group. The first word we'll look at a little more later on. It's a klegomai, and that's the verb. And that verb is used uh, in some some cases for someone picking something out for themselves, choosing something out of a number of options, or choosing a person or thing from a sizable number. Now, when we have the noun applied, for example, to Jesus Christ, you can't apply those verb definitions to that because Jesus wasn't chosen out of a number. So it's very important to understand these different nuances. That second word, eklektos, one we looked at in more detail last time, is used 22 times in the New Testament, and it refers, or usually translated, elect or chosen. But as I pointed out, this is more accurately translated with the idea of choice in, in terms of something qualitative. That seems to be the core value of this, this term is expressing something's quality, that it is something of excellence. It is something that is superior. It's not emphasizing something that is the object of a, of, of a, of a choice or of a decision, but we talk about, as I, as I've, uh, well, we'll look at this in just a minute, but the idea of something being made of something choice or excellent. A clogge, uh, which is the, uh, also a noun is, indicates picking out something or election or selection, as we'll see, and we'll look at some of those uses as we go through this. So when we look at English word meanings, and a lot of times, and I learned this from a pastor I grew up under that, that's really important, and a lot of Bible students don't understand this. When you look in a Bible dictionary, a lexicon, which is basically a, a dictionary, you look up the Greek word and it tells you the basic th- two, three, four, five meanings in English. But each of those English words that are used identify a range of meaning. And you can look at any of those English words up in an English dictionary and you may find five or six or seven different words describing what that word means. And then you can go further and look in a thesaurus and find another group of words 
And what you have to do is, as, and I learned this from a seminary professor, one of the most significant aspects of doing a word study in Greek or Hebrew was doing uh, work in the English language to define, to make sure you're, you're picking a definition for the Greek or Hebrew word that really fits that context. And so often what you have is people just go look at a lexicon and they pick, pick a word. They pick, oh, well, this sounds good. The, 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 uh, more, uh, freshman or sophomoric amateurish exegetes say, oh, I like this meaning because it fits what I want the passage to say. And, and so they pick a word that fits their, uh, theological presupposition. Uh, another uh, mistake that happens is that they don't understand that the there are limitations to all of these lexica. For example, the standard lexicon that we used when I was in seminary for Hebrew was the one edited by by uh, Brown, Driver, and Briggs. We always referred to it by the initials of the authors BDB, and I just about destroyed one. Uh, lexicon just going through one semester of the exegesis of Psalms when I was in seminary, which is typical of, of most people. I think one of my professors, uh, S. Lewis Johnson, had had his uh, BDB rebound six times over the course of his career. So it was something you used a lot. But but BDB came out in 19, well, there are different editions, but, but I think the first edition came out around 1914 and the second or third edition came out around 1918 or 1919. Now put that in context, that's during World War One and at the end of World War One. You think we've learned a lot about some of these ancient languages through archaeology since the end of World War One? Well, of course we have. At the end of World War I, liberals who di- didn't believe the Bible were saying that, that, well, the Bible's wrong because it talks about this group of people called the Hittites, and we can't find any evidence of the Hittites anywhere in any ancient literature. Nobody mentions them. Nobody says anything about them. See, the Bible's just dead wrong. It's just making people up. That was uh, until 1927. 1927, they discovered Bogazkoy, which was the capital of the Hittite Empire, and all of a sudden the Bible was right. Well, it was right all along. It's that people were just wrong. But we've learned a lot. We've discovered uh, a number of uh, languages, ancient languages. Akkadian was one of them that was discovered. I'm not exactly sure when it was, but through that period you had the discovery of the Ebla tablets and Ebla in the um, early to mid-1970s. You had the discovery of... of uh, of uh, <clears throat> numerous uh, collections of, of documents in many places in the 20th century, and all of that uh, gave us a lot more examples of language and the use of language, and um, and so the understanding of what a lot of these words meant uh, changed or clarified or became more precise over the period of time in the 20th century, so that now there's a new Hebrew lexicon out called the Hebrew Aramaic Lexicon of the Old Testament, or Halot for short, and um, it's much, much better. Nobody goes back and uses BDB anymore. And when I was working through Hebrew exegesis, even in the even in the late 70s, one of the stories that we were told is that when the New American Standard, and I'm not going to ask you to hold up your New American Standard, we do that in a Baptist church. We say, everybody hold up your New American Standard. Uh, if you have a New American Standard, when they translated the Old Testament, they just automatically translated the Hebrew word with what BDB said that it was. 
which is poor scholarship, especially considering that that translation is made in the late 60s when they could have availed themselves of a lot of scholarship since, since 1917 or 1918 when BDB came out. So the reason I say that is because it's not that the language changes, it's that due to all of these additional discoveries of documents and other things, it's added to our treasure trove of, of these documents. And back in the 16th century, just think if, the, if our understanding of Hebrew changed that much from 1918 to 19, 1980 or 1990, how much more did our understanding of words in, in, the, in Greek and Hebrew change from uh, 1611 when the authorized version came out, remember about 70% of the English words that were used in the King James translation and the authorized version were the same words that were used a generation earlier, uh, a, a generation earlier when the Bible was first translated uh, into, into English. And those, those words remained the same, and they were pretty much determined, the meanings were determined, because they've been studying with those, that set of meanings since, um, since the Vulgate was translated by Jerome in the, um, in, in the fourth to fifth century. So, uh, we get locked into these ways of thinking about certain words, and so it's really helpful to look at like English word meanings. Elect has the idea also of, uh, uh, if you look it up in an English dictionary, someone that's appointed, someone that's uh, designated, someone that's de- something determined. Uh, that's a range of different ideas. Something appointed is very different in some sense from the meanings of the word determined. In the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, the concept of something that is choice as, a, as an adjectival description, it's something of very good quality, it's excellent, it's the best, it's special, it's valuable, something that, that's the qualitative idea. Or the verb select has the idea of something carefully chosen as being the best or most suitable. It's not emphasizing the rejection of something, but again, it has that, that nuance of, of quality. I pointed this out in the uh, look at Old Testament words. Bahir from the word bahar, the verb, means something that is chosen or choice or select. And then we have the great example I picked up in in Israel a few years ago on magnum bars. That that this the word here is that this is a an ice cream bar that that has as part of the ingredients choice almonds. And the word there for choice is. Mobecharim, which is from Bahar. You can hear it if you listen. Baharim, that M-O at the beginning changes a verb to a noun or a participle. So uh, it clearly has that idea of excellence uh, within it, even in modern Hebrew, picks that up, carries it through from ancient Hebrew. We looked at the idea, thirdly, of the importance of corporate identity in relation to Israel and the church. It, uh, Israel is viewed as a corporate entity, not as so much as individuals, as Americans. Your worldview emphasizes rugged individualism. When we look at a group, we look at it in terms of individuals. In the ancient world, when they looked at a group, they looked at it in terms of the group and minimize the sense of individuals. It's a corporate identity, and that's important because every time you see the word Israel used in relation to 
being chosen by God in Romans 9 through 11. It's looking at God's choice of, of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a national purpose. Not, it's not soteriological. It's not for salvation. So uh, it's important to understand that. And I think this also relates, If we, I don't think we're going to get that there in our discussion of election this time, but if one of the views of election is, and, and I, that I lean heavily toward, is corporate election, that, that Christians are elect because they're, they're choice, because they're in Christ. We'll see that when we get to Ephesians uh, 1.4. They're choice, qualitative, because they're in Christ. It's a corporate identity, not an individual selection process. So then we went back to the Greek words, eklegomai, eklektos, and ekloge, looking at the fact that we're looking at that word eklektos. And so I want you to go with me to Matthew, uh, Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Let's just stop and think through this just, just a little bit. Matthew 22. This is a parable. I hit it real fast and real, in a real hurry last time because I um, was running out of time. It's the parable of the wedding feast. It is a, the purpose for this parable is that Jesus is telling the Israelites that the kingdom of, they've rejected the kingdom. The kingdom has come; it's been offered. They've rejected the kingdom, and now the kingdom is going to be postponed. And the message is now going to go to peoples, people other than the Jews. God's chosen. God's chosen people, God's choice people. So, starts off saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So we're going to have a party. We're going to have the marriage feast, the marriage feast following the wedding. And so he wants to invite his people. So he sends out his servants to call. Now, that's also an important word in all of the discussion about election and foreknowledge and predestination and it has its idea is brought into theology as the idea of the irresistible call of God, that those who are elect and only those who are elect are called, have a special calling from God. It's referred to as irresistible grace or the effectual call, and they cannot reject it. They cannot say no to that effectual call. It will effect its purpose, which is to save them. And so here we have a call, but, you know, it doesn't go to just the people who show up and who are properly clothed. This call goes to everyone. So this call is a universal invitation. Now, Calvinists believe in a universal overt invitation, but the effectual call is only an internal restricted call from a work by the Holy Spirit, and he only calls those who are elect and those who will be saved. That's within Calvinist thought. So he sends out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. So there's this wedding invitation that's gone out, and now there's a reminder. And we see the emphasis on volition here that they were not willing to come. Now, this is really important to catch what's going on here. What determines whether or not they are not only at the wedding feast but properly clothed has to do with whether or not they're willing to come. Pay attention to that. 
They're, they don't come because they're not willing to come. And so because the initial group that's invited, and that represents Israel, they weren't willing to repent. And so God is going to change his plan and is going to open things up to a broader audience. And that's verse 4. He sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf, all are killed, all things are ready, come to the wedding. That just a, This verse again is just a continued invitation to Israel. But they made light of it, went their ways. And then verse 6, Others get violent, seized his servants, treated them spitefully, killed them. That's a reference to the Jews of the Old Testament killing, rejecting the prophets and killing the prophets. Verse 7, But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. That is a picture of the uh, fifth cycle of discipline and the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, and the warning will come that this is going to be repeated in the near future. When the king heard about it, he was furious, sends out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up the city. Then he says to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? They were not worthy because they didn't. They were unwilling to accept the invitation. In context, they weren't unworthy because they're not elect. It doesn't say nowhere to this point do we see an emphasis on someone else's decision. That's the important thing to see here. The reason they're not worthy is because they were unwilling to respond to the invitation. So they're unwilling to respond to the invitation, and so now uh, they're, they're under discipline, and the invitation is going to go to another group, verse 9. This is where it shifts to another group. I talked like it was earlier, but this is the point where it goes to another group. Uh, therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. So it's a mix of people, and this indicates their uh, <clears throat> relative moral value. Some of them are, are good people. Some of them are bad people. None of them are going to be righteous people. Okay, they're just like most people you meet on the street. Some are better than others. Some are worse than others. They're good and bad. So you've got a group there, both good and bad. And the wedding hall is filled with these guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Everybody else has on a wedding garment. The way the story is told is apparently those who responded to the to the invitation were given this wedding garment. It's it's the clothing of righteousness. The picture here is that no one is righteous on their own. They have to be given righteousness by by God. It's the doctrine of the imputation of righteousness. It goes back to Abraham, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was it was counted to him as as righteousness. So, um, this is what this depicts: the right kind of clothes, the right kind of righteousness. That one guy doesn't have it, and so he is kicked out. The question is: How did you come in here without a wedding garment? The wedding garment represents their quality. Underneath the wedding garment, some are good or some are bad, but the key issue isn't whether they were good or bad. The key issue is do they have the right garment on? 
and the right garment is provided by the king. So they've accepted, those who have accepted the invitation are given the garment of, of, of righteousness. Now, the king then announces his punishment on the one who doesn't have the right clothing and says, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a picture of eternal punishment. And then we come to this last verse. For many are called, but few are. And the way it's translated is few are chosen. Now, the way English is written, few are chosen indicates someone else other than the ones who accept the invitation to show up at the feast. Someone else has chosen them. Someone else makes the determinative decision as to where they're going to end up. But as we, but that contradicts the whole story. As we look back at the parable, what is it that determines whether or not they're there at the wedding feast? Has nothing to do with anyone's choice in the story other than their choice. They're, the ones who aren't there were unwilling to respond to the invitation. It's their choice. It's not the king's choice. So, when we look at this, we realize that, that by translating it as chosen, we're contradicting the elements of the story. But if we look at the way that, that eklage is used, uh, or eklektos is used here, it has that idea of quality. That's what we're talking about. Some people didn't have the qualitative works that other people did. They didn't have the qualitative garments. Let me correct that. They didn't have the qualitative garments. So if it's translated, many are called, but few are choice, the emphasis is on the quality of those that are there wearing the appropriate garments. It's not an emphasis on the kings choosing some and not choosing others, and it's not a picture of of um, the fact that there's been some arbitrary decision. It's emphasizing still their individual responsibility to respond to the message. And then I closed last time by looking at Isaiah 61.10, which gives us the same imagery in relation to the kingdom. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That's the idea. You see the same thing in imagery in Zechariah chapter 3, where you see Satan accusing Joshua the high priest and the Lord, uh, the servant of the Lord there, the angel of the Lord, clothes uh uh, Joshua the high priest with new garments and that's a picture of imputation of righteousness so that's what we have here for he God has clothed me with the garments of salvation he's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels so this is the emphasis it's not on someone the, the ones who end up at the wedding feast are not there because of someone else's choice. They're there because of their response to the invitation. Contrary to a determinist view of, of election that God chooses, and what we see is just simply the result of God's, God's choice. And then the last verse needs to, in this, um, in Matthew, 
where did I look at it? Matthew 20. I'm skipping back to uh, Matthew 21, the previous chapter. Uh, Matthew 21:43, which is a picture of the same principle. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation. That's how it's translated. It's the word eth, uh, ethnoi, given to a people. It can be translated Gentiles, but people, given to people bearing the fruits of it. So this is talking about God taking the kingdom uh, offer away from the Jews and that that now goes, uh, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. Now, that brings us up to where I stopped last time, and I hope that helps make things a little, little more clear. Now, another word that we want to look at, that was looking at the adjective uh, eklektos. Now we want to look at the verb eklegomai. Eklegomai, again, is usually translated to choose or to select, which works in some context. That works in uh, in some contexts, and but not in all contexts. And again, it, it still we will see that it still emphasizes this sense of quality. But what we tend to do because of our predisposition coming out of a Calvinist background, and most of our heritage, by the way, is Calvinist, just, just so you know. Most uh, early, almost all early dispensationalists, 19th century dispensationalists were Calvinists because Calvinists had a higher view of Scripture than anybody else did. And that was, that was uh, one of the prime, one of the uh, several primary reasons. But anyway, so we look at the verb. And it has a range of meanings. Uh, pick out for yourself, choose a person or thing from a sizable number. But we read into it a salvation nuance. Ah, he made a choice as to who will be saved and who's not. Well, let's look at the evidence. By the way, this is sort of how you do a word study. This is a good example because this is a word that is used uh, depending on, a, on one particular textual problem 20 or 21 times. In, in the Bible. So that's easy to kind of skim through those and look at them and to categorize them. It's used to refer, in the first sense, to the elect at the end time. Now, the word elect can just be a synonym for believers. In Daniel, it talks about the elect at certain times, and it's either the referring to the saved under Israel in the Old Testament, or if it's referring to a future event, in the tribulation, then it's referring to Old Testament. Um, it's referring to tribulation believers. If it's used to refer to uh, church age believers, then then it has that sense. So the word itself is not limited to one dispensation or another. It can refer to to believers of whatever dispensations is in the context. So in Mark thirteen twenty. <clears throat> The Lord's talking about the end times, and he says, unless the Lord had shortened those days, that is the final events prior to Armageddon, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, that is delivered, not justified. Here's another example of where the word saved, sozo, does not mean to be justified, but it refers to deliverance from the horrors of the tribulation period. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be delivered, but for the elect's sake whom he chose. Now, that doesn't say anything about the basis for that uh, that, that choosing, 
Okay, we have to look at other passages for that. It just simply relates to God's making a choice for some purpose that's unstated. Let's look at another another category of usage. It's used um, it's used to refer to the God, uh, or excuse me, Christ's choice of the twelve disciples, including Judas Iscariot, who was not a believer. So Jesus chose the twelve, but that use of the word choose doesn't relate to eternal destiny or justification. The use of the word there in Mark 13.20 doesn't refer to eternal destiny or justification. Here we have, past, uh, we have statements like, uh, he called his disciples to himself in Luke 6.13, and from them he chose 12 men, including an unbeliever. John 6.70 said, did I not choose you the 12, and one of you is a devil? John 13.18, I do not speak of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So this word chosen is used several times, and it includes Judas Iscariot. So it's clearly not a word that has as its core meaning the idea of choosing or selecting for salvation. The textual problem, I pointed this out last time, is in Luke 9.35, the other synoptics say, this is my beloved son. If you have, I'm not sure if it was a new American standard, but there are some, uh, uh, some English translations that adopt a, a textual variant that reads, this is my uh, chosen son, hear him. The reason I bring this out is it shows that in the mind of who, the scribe who substituted chosen for beloved is he understands that the word, the verb eklegomai has a qualitative nuance. Okay, it has this qualitative, beloved is a qualitative idea. So he understands in his mind that eklegomai as a verb has a qualitative sense to it. It's not just talking about arbitrary selection. Now, another way in which the word is used is it refers to people who've been invited to a banquet and they're just making an individual uh, choice. They're just making an individual choice. An example I didn't put on the screen, Luke 10, 42, Jesus said, one thing is needed and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. She's making a choice in terms of her time management to spend time learning the word under the Lord rather than spending time uh, taking care of the house and domestic chores. Another example is uh, this one in Luke 14, 7. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. They're coming in. They want to find the most comfortable seat first. First come, first serve. We're going to pick and choose our, our seat. So it's just, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with anything spiritual. Another example is in Acts 6, 5, when uh, the apostles are choosing or selecting uh, Stephen and Philip and the others to help them in the ministry to the uh, Greek widows in in the church in Jerusalem. So again, it's 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 a choice. The apostles are doing the choosing, and it's not a choice related to anything spiritual. In Acts 15.22, after the Jerusalem conference, 
The leaders in the church in Jerusalem selected some other men to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. And so again, it has no spiritual significance. The apostles are selecting certain other messengers to send uh, with Paul and Barnabas. In Acts one twenty four, Peter is speaking, and Peter is praying that the Lord would reveal to him whom he's chosen among these two candidates to replace Judas Iscariot. Again, it's not related to salvation at all. How many have been related to salvation so far? None. Just, just want to make sure you're keeping up. In Acts 13, 17 refers to God's selection of the patriarchs of, and through them, the patriarchs of Israel and through them, the nation Israel for his purposes. In Acts 13, 17, the God of his people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. Is that soteriological? No. Nothing in the passage has anything to do with salvation. Acts 15, 7, God's selection of Peter to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He's choosing an apostle who's already saved, who was a disciple, now an apostle, to, for a particular mission. He's selecting him for that mission. It has nothing whatsoever do, to do with his salvation or spiritual status. And then in Acts um, 15.25, it refers to the Jerusalem Council now making a decision similar to the verse I quoted earlier in verse 22, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen, that would be choice men here, could fit this context, a qualitative idea. They picked the best to go with Paul and Barnabas to give that report back to the church at Antioch. Okay, so now we've gone through seven categories and none of them yet refer to anything to do with, with eternal destiny or what we would refer to usually as salvation or justification. The eighth category is a general category of God choosing the foolish, the base, or the poor to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world, verse 28, the things which are despised. God has chosen things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Not soteriological has to do with God's mission for the saved, not choosing those who would be saved. And then we come to the last category, the one and only verse usage that really has theological significance and relates to this idea of election. Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, he's choosing a group of people. God is doing the choosing, the selecting. He's choosing a group of people who are defined by these three words, us, in, and him. He's choosing that group for a purpose, and that purpose is to be set apart, to be holy, to be blameless, and before God. Now, we understand that the way we read this we everybody reads a couple of words into this verse in order to get it to make sense to them. The Calvinist reads it this way. He chose us to be in him. See, I've supplied that infinitive to be. He chose us to be in him. That's the, their, the Calvinist concept of unconditional election. 
If so, this is the only usage of this word in the New Testament that has a soteriological context. And it's talking about, about that idea of, of election. Or we can read it this way, before the foundation of the world, that is in eternity past, he chose us who are or would be in him. He's choosing a corporate group. He's making a decision. Those who will be in Christ, those who will be the, the, the choice ones, those who are robed in righteousness, there's a destiny for them. So it would be understood this way. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us who are in him. That's one idea. Not choosing us to be in him, but choose us in him, those of us who are in Christ. Choosing those in Christ to be blameless and uh, before him in, in love. So how you read that is is different. And the grammar in the Greek doesn't particularly clarify that. What helps clarify the meaning here is going to be going back and looking at how this word is used. In the first possibility, it's soteriological. soteriological. In the second, God is saying those who are in Christ are to be blameless and before me in love. It doesn't have to do with individual selection of who will be saved and who will not be saved. Okay? Now we get we go back to our initial passage here, and we see that this term elect should probably be translated choice. He's talking to the choice ones, and there there are three ways in which this term choice is is modified. Now the idea that we're looking at here, if choice is a qualitative term related to their possession of imputed righteousness. What we're really talking about is positional truth. Those who are in Christ because they have imputed righteousness. It's not talking about, it's not emphasizing a divine choosing of who will be saved and who will not, but it's talking about the choice ones, the quality ones, the excellent ones. Why are they excellent? Not because of what they've done, but because they are robed in the righteousness of Christ. Now he's going to say three things about this qualitative group. And the first thing is that their choice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And as soon as we see the word foreknowledge, once again, we're just mired in this historic debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, between the determinists and and the free will advocates, between the Augustinians and the Pelagians, uh, uh, those who are followers of Suarez versus those who are followers of Banez, and, and the, the, the march goes on. And this is really important because when you read in Calvinist commentaries, when you read Calvinist art authors, they read certain meanings into the term that I do not believe are there. But that's what their theological system demands. One of these authors is a man who's professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, well-known author, has published a number of uh, commentaries, and is um, highly respected for his scholarship. That's why I've chosen him and one other, uh, or two other writers here who are Calvinists in order to just emphasize what they're saying. 
Douglas Moo says that it, there are six occurrences of the word group, either prognosco, which is the verb, or prognosis, which is the, the noun. There are six uses of that word group in the New Testament. He says only two of them mean to know something beforehand. Only two of the six uses. So he will say that four um, really mean something else. It says only two mean beforehand. It's very clear from Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17 that those two passages clearly mean that. Now, one of the rules that they that, that they always emphasized in, in doing exegesis is that when you have an unclear passage or an unclear, ambiguous use, and you have a clear use, and especially if you have several clear uses, you always you define a word or explain a concept in terms of the clear uses and not use the unclear or ambiguous use as your basis for your theology. You always read, go from the clear to the unclear. So you have two clear passages that indicate that this means foresight or knowing beforehand, and you have four, according to him, that mean something else. Now, how does he define these? He says, the three others, besides the occurrence in this text, this is his commentary on Romans 8.28. So Romans 8.28 plus these passages that are on the board, Romans 11.2, 1 Peter 1.20, Acts 2.23, and look, our passage, 1 Peter 1.2. He says these passages uh, all have God as their subject. Now, pay attention to that phrase. What he is saying is when the word doesn't have God as a subject, it means apples. And when God is the subject of the verb, it means oranges. That's a logical fallacy. A word means what it means whether a man is performing the action or God is performing the action. You don't change the meaning of the word just because you have a different person performing the action. If Bill hits the ball and Sue hits the ball, guess what? Hitting the ball means the same thing for both of them. All right? To change that is a problem. So see what he's saying here is they, that these other four examples all have God as their subjects. And therefore, see, th- he's really drawing this conclusion. He's reading it into the text, into his evidence. He says, they do not mean no before in the sense of intellectual knowledge or cognition, and I'll add for clarity ahead of time. But this is what the the word means. It means to enter into relationship with someone beforehand, to have a relationship. Now, what they'll typically do is go back to Old Testament uses of the word and say, when Adam knew Eve, see, he had a relationship with her. That's more than just looking across the garden and go, I recognize her. God made her. I still have a little pain over here in my side right now, but he made her yesterday her, her name is Isha. That's what I called her. It's, it's, see, they'll say, no, n- n- the word no implies this, this relationship. And so I would say they're reading that in. He also says, or it means to foreknow means to choose or to d- determine beforehand. And some translations will even translate prognosco not as foreknowledge but as foreordination, which is a totally different term, or even predestination which takes you completely away from the core meaning of the uh, of the Greek word. So he concludes, if, if then the word means know intimately or have regard for... See, when man is the subject of that verb, it doesn't have these meanings. 
Well, wait a minute. When Adam knew Eve, who's the subject of the verb? It's not God. It's Adam. So he's got a logical problem here. He's, he's, he's got a logical fallacy in his, the structure of his argument. Now, when you look at these verses... He's got six that he says are clearly to know beforehand. I mean, two that are clearly to know beforehand. Acts twenty six five and Second Peter three seventeen. But if you look carefully at the other four verses in Romans eleven two, it refers to God's foreknowledge of corporate Israel. So he's misidentified that use. In First Peter one twenty and Acts two twenty three. The object of foreknowledge isn't, uh, isn't humans, it's Jesus Christ. Again, it doesn't fit the pattern. And then uh, 1 Peter 1, 2 is the subject, the topic we're looking at, which ought to be one of the most controlling verses, and he wants to change that. It relates to Christians. So it, it, none of these other four have anything to do with the point that he's making. They're elect according to foreknowledge. Okay, not, I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't fit at all. They're already, they're already Christians. Okay, then we have Tom Schreiner. This guy's, this guy's brilliant. A lot of these guys are, their IQs are probably way off the charts, but they have a theological system they're reading into the text. And he makes basically the same points. He says, some have argued that the verb proegno, or prognosco, uh, here should be defined only in terms of God's foreknowledge, that is prescience. That is, God predestined to salvation. Those whom he saw in advance would choose to be part of the redeemed community. Now, the way he states that is really important. This is where we put on our, our learn-to-think-critically hats. This is really important because what he is saying is that, that what the Calvinists will say to me is, you're saying that God is looking down the corridors of time and he's choosing you because of something you do. That's works. But belief for them is, in their system, meritorious. God gives you saving faith. So it's not the object of faith that has the merit. It's the kind of faith that you have that has the merit. And if you have the right kind of faith, it's going to produce the right kind of works. And that's going to be evidence then that you had the right kind of faith. And that's lordship salvation. You're, you're not. You're, you're saved by a faith that's given to you. God goes, you're elect, so I'm giving you faith. You're elect, I'm giving you faith. You're not elect, and the faith you think you have is bogus. You just think you have it yourself deceived. But your works, because you sin too much, show that you don't have the right kind of faith. That's basically their position. And that's what he's presenting here is a distortion based on his, his presupposition. Notice he still recognizes that, like like uh, Doug Moo, that Acts twenty six five and Second Peter three seventeen are clearly a prescience view. God knows what will happen ahead of time. So he says, according to this understanding, that is what he would say to us. According to this understanding, predestination is not ultimately based on God's decision to save some. Instead, God has predestined to save those whom He foresaw would choose Him. Where he's going to go with that and where they go with that is that that's works. But everybody, it doesn't matter who you listen to, everybody has to have something that's non-meritorious. We believe faith is non-meritorious because anybody can believe, and it's the object of faith that has the merit. 
If you're into lordship or Calvinism, the what's non-meritorious are the works that are produced after you're saved that demonstrate that you're saved. Everybody sticks some, has something that's non-meritorious. And you have to look at where's the merit? Is it on the on God's side or on human side? So if, if faith is non-meritorious, it's because the merit is at the cross. It's what we're believing in. It's in the promise of God, the character of God, and the work of Christ on the cross. And a classic little book that a lot of people read when they first start investigating Calvinism is this little booklet called The Five Points of Calvinism, where they state, when the Bible speaks of God knowing particular individuals, it often means that he has special regard for them and that they are the objects of his affection and concern. But again, what we discover is the examples they use is of, from the Old Testament is of a human being knowing another human being. And, and so they're switching very subtly the terms of their logic. Now, when we look at the lexicons, the lexicons all indicate this priority of the idea of knowing ahead of time. The Liddell Scott Jones, which a lot of, uh, it covers both classical Greek as well as Koine Greek, and a lot of people prefer to use that, or some scholars prefer to use that over any other. And, it's, and their first meaning is to know, perceive, or learn, or understand something beforehand. Prognosticate. To foreknow, to learn things in advance. Second meaning is to judge beforehand, to evaluate something ahead of time. See, they don't, you read just a basic lexicon that doesn't have a theological axe to grind, and it's not emphasizing this having a relationship ahead of time idea uh, whatsoever. But they do at, at, um, they don't recognize any meaning of prognosco that employs or that implies choice, election, loving relationship, or predestination. It's not in any of the meanings listed in that lexicon. Now, the Bauer Arn Gingrich Dictionary, which is just on New Testament usage, says is their first meaning to know something beforehand or in advance. Their second meaning is to choose something beforehand or in advance, but they give a limited range of verses that they use uh, to support that. The only passages that this lexicon cites for the debated meaning are the very passages where we have the debate. So you can't read your final answer into the passage because that's what's at issue. So you have to decide the meaning of the words first before you go to your conclusion. In Moulton and Milligan, Lexicon to for no means to know previously, and that's their basic idea. Then we get into a more modern um, d- dictionary. Little that's the, the there's a word study Bible out there edited by Spiro Zodiades or Zodiades, and his primary meaning is number one, it's used of mere prescience to know something ahead of time. And then notice in his second paragraph, he gives this lengthy explanation related to God's eternal counsel and his purpose in history, etc., etc., etc. Notice how many Bible verses he cites there. What? Oops. See, that's, that, that's a methodological problem. You run into this in a number of different lexicons where they don't cite passages in order to demonstrate uh, demonstrate their their meaning. 
The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says that the, the noun prognosis denotes the foreknowledge which makes it possible to predict the future. That's the core meaning. doesn't say, again, anything related to relationship. So then we have a series of the uses. These uh, five uses all relate to all relate to the the verb. They knew me beforehand, Paul says. This is one of those clear examples of of foreknowledge in the sense of knowledge ahead of time. He's talking about the Pharisees. They knew me beforehand from the first. Romans eight twenty nine makes better sense if you say for whom he foreknew, that is to know something beforehand. Romans eleven two. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, that is who he knew beforehand in his omniscience. First Peter one twenty, he indeed was foreordained. Notice how they translated Prognosco foreordained, which front loads the issue in terms of uh, hyper predestination. Second Peter three seventeen, you therefore beloved, since you know this before, and see the first use and the last use are very clear that it means to know something ahead of time. Then we have the noun for foreknowledge used in Acts 2.23. Christ was uh, delivered up by the uh, purpose, that is the boule, the will of God, and the foreknowledge of God, that is his knowledge of future events. 1 Peter 1.2 makes it clear that there were choice ones according to a particular standard, according to the standard of God's of God's knowledge ahead of time. So, the real issue here is, does prognosco mean to know something beforehand in the sense of prescience, or does it mean to elect, to determine, or to lovingly choose beforehand? A couple of important points. First of all, the only attested meaning outside the Bible and uh, and the meaning in several New Testament passages indicates that it always means to know beforehand. It's only got one use outside the Bible. Therefore, the burden of proof is on those who claim that it means to determine or to elect. It's not supported by any lexical data. And then the second point, when we look at this, is that the word meaning, the, the meaning of the word doesn't change just because God is the subject. And man isn't the subject, and that's that's very important to look at. So in Acts twenty six five, when Paul says they knew me beforehand from the first, uh, he's witnessing in context to Agrippa the second, and reminds him that all of the Jews know Paul's story. They knew him beforehand, and they knew about him long before he showed up in Jerusalem. So this indicates a prior knowledge, not choice or election. You wouldn't say, they chose me from the first. Pharisees were not choosing him for the first. So that kind of idea just doesn't fit. The other thing that we see here is it includes the idea, often in Greek verbs, where you supply the word about. They knew about me. They knew about Paul. They knew things about Paul. So foreknowledge means to know something about someone, not to know them directly, not to know them personally or intimately. And we often see this in different uses of the Greek where English supplies the word about in order to make it uh, make it very, very 
uh, very, very clear. This is seen in Hebrews 6, 9. Uh, Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. The verb that we have here translated convinced of does not actually include the word of in the Greek. It says we're convinced, but in English you have to be, you have to include that word of or about in order for it to make sense. Uh, so we, we often, the point I'm making, we supply this word about, so when God foreknows something, he is foreknowing something about someone. That is, that's common usage. Now, another example is in 1 Peter 1.20, which reads in the top example from the New King James Version, he indeed was foreordained, it's, it's prognosco, no beforehand, before the foundation of the world. And 1 Peter 1.20, he was chosen before the creation of the world. Neither one accurately reflects the verb prognosco. The New American Standard and the NET both translated correctly with foreknow. But you see in the NKJV and the NIV, they're both interpreting the passage. They're not translating the passage. Their theology is being front-loaded into their, into their translation. Now, in 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, in these verses, we have uh, a reference to our redemption, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained, that is, known beforehand, before the foundation of the world. So what we see here is that the down here, this word that's translated he is a uh, perfect passive participle, for this whole phrase, indeed, was foreknown, foreknown beforehand, is a reference back uh, to the singular masculine genitive of Christ. Now, Calvinists try to argue that this means it was Christ himself who was foreknown. However, if you look at Acts 26.5, it shows that when the object is a person, the meaning doesn't change. It still means to know something beforehand, not to have a relationship with someone. And so what the Calvinists are trying to do is because God's doing the foreknowing and it's Christ, then that means it's a relationship. So it's very important to to watch these little slights of hand uh, that takes place here. And then I'm going to wrap up tonight with uh, this last phrase, 2 Peter 3.17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this ahead of time or beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness. This is the main idea. It has to do with knowledge ahead of time. So elect has to do with being choice. The standard, we'll come back and look at this next time. Uh, The standard is according to the foreknowledge of God, and that is an important phrase to understand, so we'll start there 
uh, next time and help us to understand this uh, terribly confusing doctrine sometimes related to election and foreknowledge. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded that that you are in control, but that doesn't mean you override our volition in terms of our eternal destiny. We're responsible for that decision, and that means that we have real decisions to make as to whether or not we're going to trust you and trust in Christ or whether or not we're going to try to rely on our own efforts and our own merits in order to uh, get to heaven. Father, we're thankful that we have clarity in the Scriptures. We pray that you might help us to understand these things, as difficult as they are, to sort of uh, disrobe our thinking of erroneous concepts so that we can expose that which is true. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.